First Peter chapter 5, verse number 1. The elders which are among you I exhort, whom also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, he shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. May all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Or as Brother Jackie would say, the humble. Down in Alabama, they leave that H silent. They humble things, which I think is unholy. But anyway, <laughs> my sense of humor is not quite back yet either. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober. Be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> you ever laugh and cough at the same time? <coughs> Man. And then you get into that whole, you breathe in stuff, and, okay, give me a second. Whom resist, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. I can't stop smiling. My wife snuck in. Now, you could say that's because she's here to support me or she's getting a break from Master Club. I'll choose the first one. And resist steadfast in the faith, knowing the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after that ye have suffered a while, Make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Gracious Father, um, I've never been more keenly aware of my need for you than I am right now. And I pray, Lord, that you would just help me to accomplish what you want done tonight, and that you'd bless your word that you speak to our hearts and make us more like Jesus. And maybe he'll be lifted up in it. For it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. Uh, The next little bit, I'm going to reference some of the stuff we've been dealing with here lately. And I don't want you to be, on the one hand, you may be like, good, I want to know what's been going on. So there will be a little bit of that for you, so take comfort. But those of you like, no, I'd really rather not hear about it. There won't be much, so take comfort in that. But those, those things that we can use and those experiences that we've had that can be a help and an encouragement and a lesson to people, I certainly don't want to miss that opportunity. Um, so just pray that God gives me good discernment on that. With that in mind, these days of sabbatical have been a mixed bag of emotions. I've got a pendulum, an emotional pendulum. We all have it. Some of us are swing wider than others. Mine swings very wide. And though it is slowing down, it has swung from the depths of discouragement to the heights of optimism, sometimes seemingly on a moment-by-moment basis. People ask me, how's your day been? Well, that's not the right question. How's my hour? And sometimes maybe you've been there too. You know, just by hour, you just feel like moment-by-moment, moment, it's, 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 it's swinging. 
Even as I stand here tonight, I am not 100%. And I've come to understand that I never will be. Beyond that, I now understand I never was. None of us are. In this moment, if you ask me how I'm doing, I don't know how to answer that. What I do know, and I sense this more profoundly than ever before, is that I, in and of myself, am completely bankrupt of any ability to accomplish anything of lasting value for the Lord. We say that because it's the right thing to say, but I'm actually coming to experience it. I'm more keenly aware tonight of my need for his power and his blessing than I've ever perceived in my ministerial life. And it is my prayer that this type of awareness never wanes, only increases. Of the litany of passages into which I have immersed my soul, 1 Peter 5 is one that really stands out. So much so that when I came back from my first Bible class in the school and we had an exercise to break down a passage, this is the passage we broke down. I don't know if the kids realized it was my therapy, but it was. Hopefully it helped them too. Just some background. The writer, the human writer, obviously the Holy Spirit is the author of all of it, but the human writer is Simon Peter. And according to chapter 5, verse 13, he writes from a place called Babylon, which is about one of three possibilities there. It could be the literal Babylon in the region of Mesopotamia. It could be a Roman outpost in North Egypt called Babylon, or it could be a euphemism for Rome. It's not anything to go to war over. I tend to think he's in Rome. Written somewhere around 63-64 AD. And it was written to what's called the scattered and elect strangers, the Jewish and Gentile Christians that have been dispersed because of persecution. And the theme of 1 Peter is encouragement amidst persecution and amidst suffering. Peter begins this section of this letter, what we know as chapter 5, by addressing people called elders. There's two possibilities for who these elders are. Some argue that elders only refers to those of advanced age, and they cite the contrast to the younger in verse number five. Others are persuaded that he's talking to those pastors who have been in authority in the respective churches of these dispersed Christians. I believe that you don't have to choose between the two. I think he's talking to both, and that happens a lot in Scripture. Now, there is a special emphasis on those in pastoral roles. And Peter identifies himself with these men, choosing to call himself an elder rather than the much grander title that he also possesses and that of apostle. I guess 1 Peter 5 has caught my attention in these days because I fit all three categories. I am an elder in the pastoral sense. I am also beginning to feel the effects of age, and to watch longingly as those younger than me move with so much more freedom and grace and speed. And yet to many in our church, some of you even here tonight, I'm still a child who is unqualified to feel, let alone call himself old. I fall into all three camps. 
I guess this passage speaks to me because no matter what group I latch on, there's a message for me. And I want you to know that there's a message for you too. There will be times in our lives where we are positioned to thrive in the service of the king. All cylinders are firing. I mean, it's just... And then there will be times, like I've been experiencing, when you're just trying to survive. You're just trying to make it. Peter gives us some wonderful instruction for just this type of circumstance. So we'll title the message this evening, Five Keys to Making It. We're not getting into thriving yet. I'm not there yet. How about just making it? For the teacher that's in the middle of the semester, we're just going to make it. For the parent that's exasperated with their kids, whatever age they may be, we're just going to make it. For the job that has just gotten too much to deal with, we're just going to make it tonight. And we'll let the Lord bring us to the place of thriving later. Five keys to making it. Number one, if you want to make it, you've got to think on your spiritual employment. Your spiritual employment. Look at verse number one. The elders which are among you I exhort, whom also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither is being lords over God's heritage, being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. In these verses, Peter makes it clear that we all have a role to play. We would call that role our spiritual employment. And he divides it into two basic categories. In verses 1 through 4, he's talking to those who lead. And in that first section of verse number 5, he's speaking to those who follow. And both are of great importance in the work of God. Any church that is doing anything for God at all has strong leaders and strong followers. And we need both. There's too many Christians that all they want to do is lead. And they know nothing of following. But then there's Christians that all they want to do is follow if it doesn't cost them anything and they don't want to get into leadership. It takes both. If I'm anything at all, if I've accomplished anything at all, God gets the glory. But a lot of the credit goes to people that were just willing to follow even when I wasn't very followable. We need both. And that's true in every aspect of our lives. That's true in our families. That's true at our jobs. That's true in church and ministry. That's true in everything. You've got to be leaders or you've got to be followers. And, and, and we need both. We need both. So what does Peter have to say to these groups? There's two wrong actions regarding this employment, regarding these roles that can cause great damage. In verses 1 through 4, he's talking to elders who misuse their role. If we fail to feed... If we fail to feed. And by the way, in principle, you can apply that to parenting. You can apply that to anything in which there's leadership. God puts us here to help feed other people. So I work a secular job. Okay, then God has put you, a Christian, in your secular job to feed the people around you. 
That may not be the the precept here, but it is the principle that God has put us in some kind of a leadership role somewhere in which we can feed those around us. And if we don't take the responsibility to feed people, then we are neglecting our duty. As a father, it's not, it's not the Sunday school teacher or the Christian school teacher or the junior church worker's responsibility to feed my kids spiritually. That's my job. It's my job. To fail to feed, those who take the role by constraint, they're not happy in service of the king. They feel like I have to or God's going to get mad at me. That's not a good attitude to have about serving God. Filthy lucre, those that are in it for the money and for the personal gain. And then he talks about neither as being lords over God's heritage. We've got too many, too many dictators and despots in the pulpit. We need servant leaders. Servant leaders. So the first wrong way to handle this is, is, when, you, is when you misuse the role. But then the second way to do this is to reject the role. Verse number five. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Apparently, there were some who weren't. Apparently, some had refused to put themselves in the role of follower. Whatever God's got for you, in whatever capacity, be it at church and ministry, be it at home, be it at work, find the role that God has for you and joyfully submit to it. Because that's your spiritual employment. Now, if you use these roles correctly, what do you get? You get reward, verse number four. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, could be tonight, by the way. I don't believe he's far away. When the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. That's the reward, a crown of glory. It's one of five crowns that are listed for the believer in the New Testament. You've got the crown of life in Revelation 2 and James 1 to those who endure trials for Christ's sake. You've got the incorruptible crown in 1 Corinthians 9 to those who are temperate. You've got the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4 to those who love his appearing. You've got the crown of rejoicing in 1 Thessalonians 2 for the soul winners. And then you've got the crown of glory. 1 Peter 5 to those who feed and are example to God's flock. That's the reward. And then the giver of that reward is the chief shepherd. Can I just give you something just interesting? It's not germane to our message tonight, but something that might interest you. Jesus is referred to as three shepherds. In John chapter 10, he's called the good shepherd. In, um, in Hebrews 13, he's called the great shepherd. And here in this passage, he's called the chief shepherd. And if you look at what it means to be the good shepherd, the great shepherd, and the chief shepherd, you know what you find? You find Psalm 22 talks about the good shepherd. You find that Psalm 23 talks about the great shepherd. And you find that Psalm 24 talks about the chief shepherd. You know why that is? Because the same author wrote the whole thing. And Jesus is that common scarlet thread that runs through all of it. See, just something for free there. What's, what's the point of, this, pass, of this, this point here? It's hard to make it if we lose sight of why we were placed here and in what role we were given. And that's part of my problem. I'm working to regain my sight as to what my role really is and who gave it to me. By the way, don't think it's not embarrassing to speak like this about myself. It is. I'm embarrassed about all of it. But that's maybe not a bad thing. That's maybe not a bad thing. 
Maybe if I get embarrassed about some things, some other people in our church that need to be embarrassed about some things will get embarrassed about some things. One of the worst things that can happen is when a Christian stops getting embarrassed about shortcomings and failures to God. Number two, second key to making it. Number two is to have a proper, first spiritual employment, and then to have a proper understanding of our self-esteem. How we esteem ourself. We hear the term self-esteem and we immediately go woke, don't we? You just, listen, you just, it's just all, just so you're happy. Just so you feel good about you. It's so important that you have the right self-esteem. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a right understanding of ourself as it relates to Christ. Verse number five. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another. See, we like the younger being submitted to the elder. We like that part, but then Jesus, or well, Peter, but Jesus through him comes back and says, no, submit yourselves one to another. It's the same idea that Paul gave in Ephesians 5, isn't it? Submit yourselves one to another. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. The proper view of self is essential to making it. And the key term is the word humility. Humility is a proper self-assessment of ourselves in light of our Savior. Now, if we're not careful, we can, this pendulum can swing too far either way. We can lack complete humility and just be prideful and arrogant, or we can be so down on ourselves that in a way it becomes its own sort of pride. That's been my problem. Anybody, anybody that thinks, that preacher thinks too much of himself, you don't know me. I am my harshest critic. But what can happen is that that sense of humility can go too far this way, and before long I become worthless for God. I can't do anything for him. Maybe you've been there. We've got to have the right esteem of ourself. Peter cites a passage that James also touches on. You see where he says in verse number 5, he says, God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. James touches on that too, James 4 verse 6, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Where does he say that? Back in Proverbs chapter 3 verse 34 where it says, Surely he scorneth the scorners, but he giveth grace unto the lowly. If, if we're going to make it, it's going to take some humility. One commentator brought this up, and the more I think about it, the more I wonder. Do you think when these guys are writing their epistles that it will eventually be understood to be inspired portions of Scripture, do you think their minds ever wandered? I think they did. And I cannot help but wonder. It's just like in Mark where where Peter is, is giving to Mark this information, and the angel says, go and tell the disciples and Peter. I am sure, as Peter is relaying that to Mark, who eventually records it in his gospel, that Peter's thinking about those things that led up to that. I'm sure he is. And you have to wonder when he says, when he says in verse 6, humble, humble, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. You've got to wonder if Peter, maybe his mind went back to Matthew 14 when he's walking on the water. Maybe at some point, there's a little bit of pride sneaks in. <laughs> I'm doing this. 
I'm walking on the water. And then he sees everything going on around him, takes his eyes off of Christ and begins to sink. And what, what happened to him in that moment? He was humbled under the mighty hand of God who exalted him in due time. You have to wonder if his mind didn't wander to that. That's another freebie. It's hard to make it if we lose sight of why we're placed here and in what role, but it's also hard to make it if you lose sight of who you are in Christ or who you would be without him. And really, that's what humility is, is knowing who you are in Christ and who you'd be without him. If we're going to make it, it's a matter of our spiritual employment and a matter of our self-esteem, but then thirdly, it's a matter of the Savior's empathy. The verse that draws me to this passage is verse 7. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Now, here's the question before us, friends. Do we really believe that? Because one of the lies the devil loves to tell is that God's not, God's not into this. God doesn't care. God's got other things to worry with. God set you to the side. God's got you on the shelf. God, God's, a, God's busy doing other things. He loves to have us think things like that. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Let's unpack it. First of all, the terms. We've been teaching the kids and, and you in here on Wednesday nights. You've got to define your terms. What's the word casting mean? It means to throw upon. So I should have thought ahead and found something that I could throw without doing any damage to it or anything else. A Nerf ball or something. But it would be something akin to, uh, I'll, just, I'll just use the beat up devotional. It's something akin to if you have something that is dangerous, something that is harmful, something that is painful, what do you do instinctively? You, you get rid of it. And you don't want it back. That's what this means. Casting, to throw upon, to, to get rid of. It, it's not just this gentle, and it's certainly not this. We tend to do that, though, don't we? Yeah. We'll hand it to God, but we'll hold on to a corner of it just in case. No, it's get rid of it. Again, that'll be my devotional. I'll miss a Monday and Tuesday out of it, but that'll be all right. Just to get rid of it. Boy, you talk about easy preaching, hard living. He says, cast it all. Whew. Yeah, but there's some things that are my department. No. Y'all, please understand, I am not teaching tonight from a position of authority because I am still working on this. My goodness. I'm nowhere close to where I need to be on this. This is for all of us. He said, cast it all. What are we saying when we don't give it all? What we're really saying 
we would never want to admit this, but what we're really saying is there's either some things that are too big for God or some things he doesn't care about. Y'all, right now, I'm just like you. I have got some whopper burdens in my life. Big ones. God wants them all. And yet I can't seem to cast them on him. Now what's he say, casting all your care? Casting all your care. And this, this hit me like a ton of bricks. I've seen it before. But this hit me like a ton of bricks. Do you know what care literally means? Anxiety. When you're somebody that's dealing with a healthy portion of anxiety. And by the way, I haven't woke. I understand some things are sinful. Some things need to be dealt with spiritually. I understand all of that. But I also understand that we've done people a disservice in fundamentalism over the years where we've just cast every anxiety aside as just being some kind of, just pray about it more, just read your Bible more, and you'll be all right. No, that we've done people a disservice with that. That kind of stuff can kill people. And I had, I had a point, and I, by God's grace, I think I'm better. My wife might disagree, but I think I'm better. It got so dark, I was just like, Lord, just, I was Elijah, man. I was Elijah without Mount Carmel. Lord, I just, I'm, I'm not better than my fathers. It's going to take me out of here. Because I've been battling the same thing for two years, and probably longer than that, but really understanding it for two years. And that anxiety, it just builds and it builds and it presses on and it presses on and it gets darker and darker and darker. But that is exactly what God means when he says, casting all your care. Where? Upon him. But do you know why we can't cast our care upon him? A lot of times it's because we're not facing his direction to begin with. Are you like me? Sometimes when you should be drawing near, do you drift away? Yeah. Casting all your care upon him. We define casting, we define care. But then second time we see care, it's a different word. It says, for he careth for you. What's that mean? Now, we hear, we hear you know, when I, was, when I was in school and a girl said she cared about me, what it meant was, you're in the friend zone, buddy. I really care about you. I don't know what that means. That's not what this means. This means that he is intensely interested in everything about you. When I reconnected with Crystal, she lived in Georgia. No, she lived in Florida at the time. Hold on. I know what the problem is. Cool. Thank you, Lord. When I started contacting Crystal, can I just tell you, I was intensely interested in everything about her. I stalked her on Facebook. I talked to everybody that knew her. I gathered all the information I could. This was not a passing interest. This was an intense interest. By the way, 
still is. Where you been? Who texted you? You know, that kind of stuff. Intense. Intense. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a uh, coincidence that many times in the Old Testament, God refers to himself as a jealous God. The things that we think of as bad in a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and they are, is jealousy and being possessive. But that's the best things about God. He is jealous of us, and he is possessive of us. And he is keenly interested in everything that's going on in our lives. So when my son prays and talks to God about all the ways that we mistreated him that day, when we wouldn't let him have this or let him do that, God may disagree with his assessment of that, but God is interested in what that little boy has to say. And somehow we think that as we get older, that stops. God has our, we have God's complete attention. Then you get into the tensing. That word casting all your care, it's tense as, if you care, it's an heiress participle. And it means, this is interesting to me because when I studied this out, I expected it to be different. I expected it to mean to keep on casting and keep on casting and keep on casting. But that's not what it means. It means to do it once. Hmm. Well, that messed up my sermon. As right study of the Bible often does. A one-time event, usually in the past. So we're to cast our care upon him One time, one and done. But then when it says, for he careth for you, you know what that means? A continuous, repeated action in the present. Casting all your care upon him, for he right now and forever will cares for you. So if we were to take the terms and the tenses and put them together, what do we get? We get the truth. Here's the truth of that passage. It is God's command and his expectation that you, Andy, and put your name in there, take all of your anxieties And throw them on the one who is always intensely concerned about you. Do it once and never pick them up again. That's what he's saying. Because of our Savior's empathy. You see, it's, it's hard to make it if we lose sight of why we were placed here and what role. It's hard to make it when you lose sight of who you are in Christ or who you would be without him. And it's hard to make it when we refuse to do away with our anxieties. Guilty. I remind you what Jesus said in Matthew 11. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon, me, upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Boy, you want to make it? It's, it's going to take 
spiritual employment. It's going to take the right kind of self-esteem. It's going to take our Savior's empathy. It's also going to take sanctified eyesight. Verse number eight. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith. By the way, that word resist has the idea of soldiers lined up, ready to go. Whom resist steadfast in the faith. A sanctified eyesight. Elsewhere, Ephesians 5.15, God warns us to be circumspect. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. We're to see all the way around us. Now, I realize this is the Wednesday night crowd, and a lot of times when you start hammering on stuff, it's not the Wednesday night crowd that needs to hear it. So if, this, if that's the case, then pass this along to the Sunday morning crowd that does. But one of the most frustrating things, not just for a preacher, but for any concerned, caring Christian, is when in love and humility you try to warn people about dangers that exist all around us, and they just don't listen. We got the greatest kids in the world in our school. But, but one of the things I've been battling with is just, just this, 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 and maybe it's all in my head, but it just seems like generationally, it just seems like across the board, everywhere you go, I see it at other churches and things like it. It just seems like teenagers are just not listening right now. And maybe they are, but, but, and, and some of them are, I'm sure. But you get fixated on the ones that you just can't reach, or you get fixated on the ones that, that you think are the most danger or whatever, and you plead with them, see what we're saying. We're, we're, I've got a message in the hopper. Man, you just don't know how many I've got in the hopper right now. I don't have to study for like a year. I will. I don't have to. But the three things that we hammer into these kids, they're so sick of it. But the three things that we hammer into these kids, the most important things for you as Christian young people to be concerned about is your boundaries, your appetites, and your influences. And if you are lacking in your boundaries, your appetites, or your influences, you are in serious trouble. But here's the thing. One of the reasons we have that problem is I haven't done a good job of reminding their parents and their grandparents that the three most important things for you is your boundaries, your appetites, and your influences. And when you preach and you beg and you plead and you see people just square their shoulders back. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. You don't know what you're talking about. It's different for us and you see them going down a road that's going to kill them because they're not circumspect. Understand something. The devil would like nothing more than to destroy every one of those kids in that other building. We got to stand in the gap. But you know what? He wants the parents too. He wants their homes. He wants their church. And we have got to get some sanctified eyesight that sees around. Because our adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. He again uses Peter to warn us to be vigilant, expecting, not thinking he might, expecting the devil to attack. One of my biggest flaws in this whole thing is I stopped expecting the devil to attack. 
And then he did. That Saturday night, he'd have killed me if he could have. Why should we expect it? First of all, what does he call him? Your adversary. What does an adversary do? They attack. If somebody's playing baseball and their position is catcher, what do they do? They catch. They catch the pitches from the pitcher. A pitcher does what? He pitches. What does a hitter do? They hit. Unless you're the Orioles. They hit. That's in their name. That's, well, duh. If somebody's called our adversary, then why would they not attack? And we say, well, duh, Andy, that's, of course. Wait a minute now. Then why is it so many Christians treat the devil as though he's our buddy? That he's not out to get us. And the world's not out to get us. Everything's all right. My kid's fine so far. My marriage is fine so far. I'm fine so far. And you don't understand, the devil is lining you up. He may already have you in the crosshairs, John. He's already, he's, all, he's just waiting for the wind to die down. You know? He's, he's one of our hunters. So I like, you know, using hunting. Me, personally, I wait for the deer to lay down. He's our adversary. This says there's a roaring lion. You remember this, don't you, from when we talked about it before. You should hear a roaring lion coming. We have this idea that when the devil gets us, it's because he snuck up on us quietly. No. I look back on my own experience, and you know what I see now in hindsight, because it's always 2020, the devil was letting me know he was coming long before he did. Roar! 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 And what do so many Christians do? <laughs> He's still a long ways away. Then it says he walketh about. He doesn't pounce, he doesn't run. He just walks, and yet he still gets so many Christians. Why? Because we're blind. And if you're that antelope that's blind, you're a goner. Doesn't matter how fast you are, doesn't matter how good your hearing is, you're a goner. And if we don't have the sanctified eyesight of walking circumspectly, devil's got us. He's got us. It's hard to make it when we fail to watch for the enemy's attacks using sanctified eyesight. It's hard to make it when we refuse to do away with our anxieties. It's hard to make it if you lose sight of who you are in Christ or what you would be without him. It's hard to make it if we lose sight of why we were placed here and in what role. Last thing we need we need steadfast encouragement. In verses 9 and 10, Peter gives us four pieces of encouragement that I hope will help you. And it is helping me. 
And resist steadfast in the faith, verse 9, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are accomplished in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish strength, and settle you. Can I give you four things that should be an encouragement to us? Number one, you're not alone. That was one of Elijah's problems, wasn't it? I alone and left. I said, no, you're not. No, you're not. Verse number nine, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. You're not the only ones going through this. Something that has helped me immensely is that I've been able to either sit down face to face or on the phone with people that know how I feel. Just to hear somebody who's reputable tell you, you're not crazy. This isn't the end. I've been where you are. You remember Jody Jenkins who came here and preached for us during COVID. Jody was the pastor of a large church in Gray, Tennessee. Jody went through very much what I've gone through. Jody ended up leaving and got some help and now he works in a different church working with the young people, but he also travels as an evangelist dealing with this very kind of thing. I intend to have him here. Jody has a ministry about this now. And I've told some of you before, when I called him and talked to him, he said, I'm going to tell you something you don't, you don't want to hear. That's always great when you hear that. Or you're not going to like what I'm going to say. Man, I love that. He said, I'm excited for you. You're right. Not what I was looking to hear. He said, you're on this thing way earlier than I was. And God's going to do a work with it. I hope he's right. I hope he's right. I have not gotten to a point where I can say, he's right! But I sure hope so. I will give you this. If I can't get this right, I'll get out of the way and get somebody in here who is right. And I appreciate your patience with me and letting me work through this. And even when I come back on the first, there's still going to be work to be done. There will be forever, you know. So I guess you got to decide... You've got to decide the uh, value-added nature of my employment. You're not alone. You know what else is encouraging? Encouraging, he's the God of all grace. Verse number 10. But the God of all grace. Seems to me if he has access to all grace, then there's plenty to be had. He's the God of all grace who hath called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. Here's another steadfast encouragement. No matter how bad it is, your suffering, my suffering, is temporary. But the God of all grace who hath called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while. Not forever. A while. You see, you're not alone. He's the God of all grace. Our suffering is temporary, but you know what else? God is working a work. Verse number 10 still. After you suffered a while, 
make you perfect. Establish, strengthen, settle you. What do those words mean? Perfect means to set an order. This is interesting to me. It's not like it's usually used mature and complete. That's what I thought. But this word, you know what it was used for? It was used when it said that Peter and James and John and Andrew were mending their nets. What were they doing? They were repairing things, strengthening things. What's God saying? I'm working through this to repair you and to strengthen you and cause you to not let that slip through again. Then he says establish. To set fast. Brother Johnny, it's what was used when it said of Jesus that he had set his face toward Jerusalem. Nobody was going to keep him from getting there. He's saying, I'm going to repair you and make you stronger, and then I'm going to set you fast towards my will for your life. He says strengthen. Now, that seems pretty basic, but this particular word is only used here. This Greek word is only used here, and it has the idea of being prepared for what awaits. See, I'm going to repair you so that this kind of thing doesn't do to you what it has, but I'm also going to strengthen you for what you still got coming. And then settle to be grounded. This harkens to Matthew 7. The wise man built his house upon the rock. What happened? The rains came down and the floods came up and the house on the rock stood firm. It takes us to that familiar passage. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them are called according to his purpose. What's that purpose? For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. If I'm candid, at the moment, I cannot really see how this little period of time in my life is making me more like Jesus. I I don't see it. But that's when you have to take God at his word that if I'll let him, it will. Now, if you were to look at a graph of where I'm at emotionally and so forth, you would not see it doing this. You would see it and then leveling out a little bit better here, leveling out. Go down a little bit over here, up here. If I'm honest, just like all of you. I got a lot of work to do. But God's given us some encouragement. It's hard to make it. When we fail to make use of the encouragement, they can only be found in obedience to the work and word of God. So what's our so what? Interestingly enough, God gives us a so what in verse 11. The one thing to take away from all of this is verse 11. It's our ultimate comfort. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What could be the best possible outcome for all of this? To him 
be glory forever and ever. Amen. That marriage that's struggling, what's the best outcome? To him. Be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What's the best outcome for that family problem, that job problem, that health problem? To him. Be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In the midst of all this, my reminder has been, as I've looked at God and said, I can't do it. His sweet Holy Spirit whispers, you never could. And you never will. That's why you got to let me. Won't you pray for me that I'll learn that? That I'll live that? Our ultimate comfort is when we understand who God is and what we have in Him. And it's all about Him. You're just trying to make it? Me too. Remember, your spiritual employment, your self-esteem, the Savior's empathy, sanctified eyesight, and steadfast encouragement. Because these are the five keys to making it.